0: Come, come and see. Words that stir curiosity and a twinge of fear. After all, what will befall us if we do? An invitation to a party tends to breed a bit of anxiety. We hesitate to step into a room full of strangers. Yet John reminds us we are known by this particular host who chooses to sanctify us and identify us as friend. So we respond to the Lamb's invitation and dare to enter in. No need for shyness in the fellowship of the Son. He created us for communion, for community. Bound us together by love, grace, forgiveness and once we are fully enmeshed in his family we are free to extend the invitation free to say come to those still standing lost and lonely at the door those wondering why the
1: peculiar
0: man with pierced palms is smiling
1: i'd like to read to you this morning from first corinthians 1 1 through 9 Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the Church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. And now from the book of John, chapter one, verses 29 to 42. John chapter 1, 29 to 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ and he brought him to Jesus the word of the lord
2: For those of you who are new to Madison Street let me just welcome you uh, welcome you to the hardest to find least cool and most allergic to program church in all of Riverside <laughs> and we kind of like it that way And Julie, don't feel bad. I just assumed that I had picked the wrong passage and that I was supposed to preach from John 1, so, uh, the prologue. So thank you for that. You were your whole yeah, I was. <laughs> if Julie reads his scripture, that's what I'm supposed to preach on. <laughs> we ask ourselves questions about what is the church supposed to be. You know, we've, we've defined that. We are the Hardest to find, least cool, most allergic to program church in all of Riverside. But what really is the identity of the church? Maybe, maybe the church is at its best when it's a service club. When, when we get things done, when we do good in the world, maybe we're at our best when we're engaged in political action, when we are, when, when we are calling forth for change in, in, in the halls of power maybe we're at our best when we're a weekly variety show when when every sunday morning you know that there's going to be a really good thing on the stage that's going to make you feel better maybe we're at our best when we're a family reunion when we just get together and we love one another and we eat together and we tell stories and eh, later in the day we get mad at each other and go our separate ways or. Maybe we're citizens of an alternative kingdom. Maybe we live in a world that doesn't fully understand what God's been up to. And we don't fully understand it either, but we're finding our way by His Spirit into a new way of being. We're in what the church calls the season of epiphany. The season of, uh uh-huh, he's here. Wow. Now what? Christmas is over. We finally took the tree down. There's some remnants of it in the carpet. But again, we're not the coolest church in town. Am I getting an amen there? Yeah, okay. Thanks, brother. Uh, That'll be enough, thank you. <laughs> In this aha moment, we affirm the notion that Jesus is king. That's well, what we've been talking about through the Advent and Christmas season, that, that Jesus is a new sort of king, that he brings a new way of being, that he calls us to a new way of life. But if Jesus is king, what are his citizens supposed to be about? So over the next few Sundays until we begin the Lenten journey, we're going to be looking at different passages in the Gospel. In fact, in a couple of weeks we'll just start looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And if that isn't enough, we're we're going to lay that side by side with the opening of Paul's letter to the corinthians to first corinthians we're going to take the jesus story and lay it next to the most dysfunctional least cool aggravating church that has ever existed you know we should aspire to be like the corinthian church not so much the corinthian church had problems that would just make your head spin any time in my 36 years of ministry, I have felt like the church I was in or the church I was consulting with was dysfunctional. I just reread 1 Corinthians and I realized I ain't seen nothing yet. And so we're going to lay the hopes and aspirations of the gospel alongside the reality of one church's practice and talk about what kind of citizens of God's kingdom are we truly called to be. So we begin looking at 1 Corinthians, the opening passage in Paul's letter. It's really a standard opening for a Greek letter in the ancient world. There's a conventional salutation. Who wrote the letter? Dear Corinthian church, this is Paul writing. But it's an unusual letter in that Paul makes it clear he's not alone. He's, he's writing it with some guy named Sosthenes. Try to say that three times real quick. Sosthenes is Paul's co laborer Paul isn't doing this letter rogue, or on his own, or as a lone wolf, Paul is writing to a community, from a community. He is, he is not just having Sosthenes be his scribe, he is writing it with him. The Greek is really clear, they are co-writers of this letter, they are collaborators in this letter. What we think is Paul, the great thinker, the great... Mind of the early church, Paul was really the great collaborator in the early church, who brought together all kinds of different people to share in the work of God. And in this letter to this dysfunctional church, he brings along Sosthenes, who must have been, you know, uh, an expert in must have been a consultant in church dysfunctional patterns, because why else would you bring him along on this letter? He goes on to define the source of the church. He's, he's making it clear that, that in verse 2 that, that this church of God isn't just a church that comes from God. It's, it's a church that utterly depends on God for its existence. The, the way the letter is written in the Greek makes it clear that, that this notion of church of God isn't just a, isn't just a title but it speaks to its reality. We are the church. You are the church, Corinth, not because you got together and figured it out, but because God's life flows through your very veins. You utterly depend on God for your existence. And because you utterly depend on God for your existence, you are invited to be the church known for holiness, for unity and for being Jesus-centered. A church that's known for its way of life, a church that's known for its being together within itself and with other people of God, and a church that's known for following Jesus. And it's that that Paul says in verse 3 is the blessing that is bestowed upon this dysfunctional, crazy church. And so Paul then does what every good letter writer of the first century Greek period does. He pivots from a salutation to a, 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 a thanksgiving, a, a block of giving thanks. But instead of doing what you normally do in a Greek letter, which is to give thanks for the recipient of the letter, Paul gives thanks for God, and for the way he has walked with the Corinthians. He gives thanks to, Paul says in the Greek, my God, again, not, a, not implying subordination, but implying intimacy. I give thanks to the God whom means everything to me because of what he's done for you. Paul's servant heart comes through, and he gives thanks for God, first of all, giving grace to the Corinthian church. A lot of different theological ways to define grace, but perhaps for Paul in Corinthians, grace best means that God is paying attention. We sort of practice a Christianity in the 21st century Western church where we We get together on Sunday morning, and we ask God to pay attention to us for an hour. And then we leave, and we hope that God isn't watching the rest of the week. But Paul is grateful for grace, that God is always paying attention to us. Not in a Santa Claus fashion of deciding the naughty and nice list, but in the sense of desiring intimacy, of wanting to walk with us, wanting to be part and parcel of our lives. That's grace. That the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, desires to be with you, to be with us. Paul says that That grace is given to us in Christ. It's Christ who gives us grace. It's it's His story. It's His work on the cross. It's His resurrection. It's all the Gospel, all the time, that shapes and defines grace in us. If we want to know what God's grace looks like, we read the life of Jesus. Because therein is how God's grace operates. And frankly, our lives probably couldn't be further from the life of Jesus. The Western church in the 21st century specializes in figuring out how to marginalize the words of Jesus, how to get together and worship in such a way so that Part of the gospel doesn't transform us because we like our lives as they are. The problem with that, liking our lives as they are, is that if we go that route, we end up like the church in Corinth. We end up dysfunctional, we end up doing awful things to each other and to the world. Grace transforms us. Grace challenges us. Grace critiques us. Grace calls us to new life. And Paul goes on to say that that grace is expressed in the gifts that God gives to the church in in spiritual gifts. You've heard me make jokes about this. I don't have the spiritual gift of telepathy. I'm not a mind reader. You've got to tell me what's going on. Um, or I don't have the spiritual gift of, you know, as a, as a pastoral counselor, or I'm a really good urban missiologist. Uh, but the reality is there are spiritual gifts that God gives the church. That the church is at its best when all of us offer our spiritual gifts. That's why we talk about being a multi-voiced worshiping community. That's why the only time they let me up here is to preach, and even then there are people standing on the the wings with hooks ready to pull me off stage. Because the truth of the matter, the way we are the church is in the expression of all of our spiritual gifts. Friday night, I saw the spiritual gifts of our brother Frank at work in, in a place where most of us would think God wasn't really all that involved, on a, on a stage at the box theater downtown. And Frank's character, while not uh, saintly, would that be a fair characterization? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> While not a saintly character, was a powerful character who, who demonstrated in this dialogue with his brother, the other character in the play, the need for grace, the, the yearning for grace, the, the desire for transformation that we all have. And yet, our, our, how we stumble and fumble our way towards that when we try to find grace without God. And so, Frank, thank you. That was powerful. And if uh, if you're not doing anything this afternoon at 2 o'clock, the show closes, so be there. Grace gets expressed in spiritual gifts, and our tendency is to spiritualize those gifts. Oh, you have the gift of preaching or teaching. Oh, you have the gift of caring. Oh, you have the... No, uh, there are other spiritual gifts. Some of you have the spiritual gift of making money. Pastor needs a new pair of shoes, so make money. (laughs) But your capacity to make money and to be generous with that for God's work is a spiritual gift. Some of you have the spiritual gift of just being quiet and centered. And believe me, some of us need to learn that spiritual gift. Some of that needs to rub off on me. We all have spiritual gifts. We have a brother in our congregation who every Tuesday night has the spiritual gift of herding cats on the stage at City Hall. And Rusty, the work you do in leading and guiding the city is a spiritual gift. And we are grateful for you and that we get to walk with you in that process. What you do as mayor of this city is... A spiritual gift. We all have those kinds of gifts. Paul says that's how grace comes alive. Is as we give voice to those gifts, as we live them out, as the church. And those gra- that grace through gifts sustains the church for the future and for God's mission of reconciliation. Our spiritual gifts are aimed in the right direction when we are working for a sustainable future, when we are working for God's reconciliation in the world, when we are working to see the grace and peace of God flow through us into our neighborhoods, into our watershed, into our world. Therefore, Paul says in verse nine, God is faithful. And the reason, the measurement of God's faithfulness is not some independent spiritual measurement. Oh, God's been faithful to me. Paul's yardstick for God's faithfulness is the fellowship, the koinonia, the church the church is proof of God's faithfulness. Yike. We all get nervous because we all know the church is hard to find. Come on, people, hard to find. Not the coolest and allergic to program. But that's how God's grace flows into the world. I read a meme the other day that said, uh, you can certainly follow Jesus and never darken the door of a building. With all due respect, I completely disagree with that. You can't follow Jesus by yourself. It's just not possible. The only way we can follow Jesus is together. The only way we can experience God's grace is together. Paul over and over and over again reiterates this. And he says to those of us who would say, Oh, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Paul gives a great big holy raspberry to that. (laughs) 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 To be religious... The Latin word religio, same word we get ligament from. We're bound to each other when we practice religion. We're bound to God and to each other when we practice religion. And so when when we gather together, we say, you know, I can't be spiritual if I'm not bound to others. My life doesn't count to you. And your life doesn't count for, to me, then I have not been spiritual. I can't be spiritual. I can only be spiritual when I'm bound to a community. That's Paul's call to the Corinthian church from the get go. This dysfunctional, ugly, brutal group of people who are beating each other up emotionally and maybe physically, he says, you're stuck with each other. This is how God's grace works. This is the plumbing and the wiring of God's grace. This is the infrastructure of grace that we are together in the journey. This gets reinforced in the Gospel reading of today, the second Gospel reading today one that begins in John 1.29. Where John the Baptist begins by identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a really curious phrase, Lamb of God. Because the implication is the capacity to take away the sin of the world, the power to do that is power beyond any Caesar's power, power beyond any other religious figure's power. This is an amazing kind of power, and it's being exercised by a lamb. A lamb. Lamb of God. Seriously? Yeah. Champion of God, warrior of God, ninja of God. All of those make sense. Lamb of God. Huh? But that's John the Baptist's point. This is a countercultural God at work, that Christ's atoning victory over evil isn't done through the myth of redemptive violence, but through the promise of nonviolence. God's redemption comes to us not because we're deserving and need a champion to beat up the bad guy, but because we're all broken. And Christ heals us. John identifies this mission and this person and this gift in such a powerful way. And then, and then he bears witness to God's seal of approval on that, to Jesus' baptism. And he says, the Spirit came down and said, this is... This is my son, whom I'm well pleased, follow him. This divine theophany, this, this manifestation of God, this demonstration of God at work is, is the sealant that, that says God's up to something that's totally different, that is totally unexpected, that's totally outside our usual realm of thinking. Now, John says all of this, and his disciples are a little bit confused. Now, John has disciples. Every every religious leader and wonder worker in Palestine in the first century had disciples. That was was a cottage industry. You went out and did your thing, religiously preaching, teaching, and... Some group of schmucks followed you. (laughs) That's how it worked. John the Baptist was no different. Except in one tiny dimension. Usually first century itinerant preachers, teachers, wonder workers clung to their disciples very tightly. Regulated their behavior in such ways that they stayed disciples. We might even today call it a little bit cultish. John the Baptist, on the other hand, said, yeah, go take a look at this guy. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is not what first century Palestinian itinerant preachers said. Oh, the other guy, he's got something to say. It would be, not this guy over here, he's crazy. I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Instead... John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so John's disciples start going, Whoa, okay, well, let's go talk to this guy. Let's break some rules here. And they do. And they go to Jesus. And John reiterates the mission. Of Jesus. And Jesus says, you want to see what God's up to? Come and see. Come on the journey. Come and see. And, and what's implicit in the Greek there is that Jesus isn't just going to you know, pull a rabbit out of his right then and there. Jesus is calling these disciples to a journey. To, a, to transfer their allegiance. To become his disciples. And to follow him. And so they do. And one of them, a guy named Andrew, he goes and finds his brother Simon. He says, "Simon, you got to come see this. You got to come see this guy." Now we can paint all the pictures of Simon that we want to paint. I, I kind of like the picture of Simon of uh, being a bit full of himself, maybe being an eight in the enneagram. You know, always always being interested in justice, especially if he's setting the terms of justice, Um, always running his brother down, uh, always sort of a step ahead of him. And Andrew comes to him, Simon, come come see. Come see this guy. Could this be the Messiah? And Simon comes, and Jesus takes one look at him and says, yeah, I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you Peter. I'm not going to call you after that guy, that son of Jacob, that wishy-washy number two son who who sold his brother into slavery. I'm not going to call you that guy. I'm going to call you the rock. Because number one, you apparently have the gift of a hard head. (laughs) And number two, it takes rocks to build stuff. And I'm going to build on you. So John's mission of repentance meets the incarnate word of God and a fellowship is formed. So take these two passages together and ask what kind of church follows King Jesus. And you can come up with an impressive list a collaborating church follows Jesus. A thanksgiving church follows Jesus. A missionary church follows Jesus. A spiritually observant or a spiritually passionate church follows Jesus. An invitational church follows Jesus. A gospel-proclaiming church follows Jesus. The point is that it's the character of who we are that is more important than our branding or our programming. Mm -hmm. What we do is only important in that it makes us who we are. And who we are is to be followers of Jesus. Citizens of a new kingdom. People who live out an alternative, curious life that invites others to be bound to God and to God's people. A life of great generosity, a life of passion, a life of invitation, a life that is shaped by good news. But we live in a world, it's hard to see it, but we live in a world where little Syrian boys get bombed and they sit in the back of ambulances covered in bomb dust and blood and we have to ask ourselves what kind of church follows jesus when people around the world are dislocated from their homes when we live in a world where christians in myanmar and muslims in myanmar are being persecuted by that government or Syria in civil war, or fill in the blank. How are we responding to that? Usually we respond with, I'm overwhelmed with first world problems. I've got to figure out how to get to work tomorrow. I've I've got to figure out how to pay the bills this month. I, I don't have time for them. Jesus says Paul says, we're bound to each other that Christians in Myanmar and Syria are as important to him as Christians in America. And it's time to recognize that. That's the kind of church that follows King Jesus. when the character of who we are is more important, than our branding or our programming and that that character pivots us over and over again into the lives of others who are marginalized and in pain. So this morning some questions. Uh, I came up with my list of questions but really there are only, there's really only one question and an answer. Two guys named Martin came up with it, Martin Luther, the reformer, and you can't see it up there, I apologize. He asks the question, what will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? What will you do in your everyday life? What matters? We prayed this morning that budgets are moral documents. How do we live in such a way? that the light of Christ is evident. What will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? The great reformer asks. And the great prophet of 20th century America, Martin Luther King Jr., answered that question. He said, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. Brothers and sisters, I have no idea what taking Jesus seriously, what following him as king will lead us into. In my, in my night terrors, it leads us into a much smaller church. Leads <laughs> us into people saying, well, if that's the church I'm not interested. And as a pastor, I'm caught between the rock and the hard place of wanting to take Jesus seriously and Wanting to keep people happy? That's sometimes a hard road to hoe. I don't know what the future holds for us. I just know that Christ calls us to take the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step. And we worry, we let him worry about the results. What will we do in the mundane days of faithfulness? We will take the first step in faith. And we'll take another one. And we'll take another one. So how are we sharing life together? How are we expressing thankfulness? Where do we see God's mission at work in the world? Where do we see God's Spirit at work in our midst? Who are we inviting to come and see Jesus? Not who are we inviting to church. Not who are we inviting to get saved. Who are we inviting to come and see Jesus? So one more thing. Brennan Manning, the lapsed Roman Catholic priest turned friend of all Christians who passed away recently, writes, Faithfulness requires the courage to risk everything on Jesus. The willingness to keep growing and the readiness to risk failure throughout our lives. Folks, you've been given a pile of chips in the game. They're called spiritual gifts, called grace. And the question is are you ready to take your pile and put it all in on Jesus? If you are, there's no guarantee that your hand wins. That's a really good card counter. And we all look at Gary. Gary, Gary, will win. Gary will win that hand. But if we put all in for Jesus, and we are willing to keep growing, and we are ready to risk failure, that's what the king asks of us. That's what it means to be a citizen of God's work in the world. Thanks be to God for his word.